Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. I'm Callie Crossley, and this is a special encore show of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanyap, that's Creole for something extra. Boston sure is known for its history, but the people most well-known about the city are largely white and male. Think Samuel Adams, Paul Revere, and Henry David Thoreau. Some of that has changed during recent decades, as Boston's all-black 54th Regiment, for example, has helped highlight Boston's African-American history. Still, most Boston guidebooks will lead you to the Freedom Trail and past sites where events like the Boston Tea Party occurred. But is there more to know beyond the facts of these well-told narratives? Three local co-authors present a new guidebook, one that offers an expanded history to the region. A People's Guide to Greater Boston features sites associated with oppression and resistance, focusing on the overlooked stories of underrepresented communities. Joining me remotely, all three co-authors of A People's Guide to Greater Boston, Joe Nevins, Professor of Geography at Vassar College. Hi, Joe. Hi, Kelly. Thanks for having us. Seren Mouliar, a coordinator of Encuentro 5, a movement-building space in downtown Boston and managing editor of Socialism and Democracy, a journal of strategy. Welcome, Seren. Hello, Kelly. And Alini McCrackis, project manager at Homeowners Rehab, Inc., a nonprofit affordable housing developer in Cambridge. Hello, Alini. Hi, Kelly. Thanks for having us. I'm glad to have all of you. Joe, I'm going to start with you. You were the point person for pulling this all together. You knew the person out in Los Angeles who'd done the People's Guide to Los Angeles. And you also knew the other two people who ended up being your co-authors in this. So why did you see a need to create a guide not based on geography, per se, but on the social justice history of Boston? Well, in many ways, it, you spoke to that at the beginning, because there's a, a tendency in the in the books that cover Boston to focus on the places that are very well known already, such as the Freedom Trail. Right? And not only does this highlight a particular cast of characters, if you will, you know, as you suggested earlier, you know, largely white and powerful people, it also leaves out the neighborhoods, right, places outside the, the core, the center of the city of Boston. At the same time, we wanted to think about Boston as a region. Right? not only the city itself, but a larger region that encompasses a great diversity of peoples and places, peoples and places that are tied together in important ways, but one of which is massive inequality. The city of Boston and the greater Boston region is one of the most unequal cities and one of the most unequal regions in the United States. This is hardly an accident. This is something that's been produced and struggled over over centuries. And so in putting together, trying to envision a people's guide to greater Boston, we wanted to bring those underlying stories and processes and the related sites to light as providing sort of a new lens to understand what the city was, is, and what it might become in the sense that the book has an explicitly political goal and that we want to help support efforts to bring about a city that's radically democratic socially and ecologically just and inclusive of all the people that live here. 
Now, you've described this as a historical geography. So I just want to give you an opportunity to just outline for people what, what that really means. And so in addition to focusing on particular sites, so we, you know, we bring the reader to places like Lawrence and Lynn and Lowell, in addition to the neighborhoods of the city of Boston, like South Boston, Roxbury, Dorchester, Jamaica Plain, we try to tell a story about the making of Greater Boston as a region over four centuries. Right? And what we mean by this, by region, is that it's an area that shares a lot, that's characterized by strong ties within and lots of divisions. So we explore these ties and divisions, how they were made and challenged and struggled over. And we do this you know, you know, by, by trying to create not a comprehensive, but a suggestive portrait of what the city is. So we were very conscious in making decisions about what to include and what to exclude. Uh, how could we best produce something that gives, gives the reader a sense of the complexity, again, not only of the city, but of the, uh, the greater Boston region as a whole. Mm-hmm. All right, Seren, you were all grad students together. That's how you all got to know each other. And I was interested in, in your saying that long, long ago, uh, Joe, whom we just heard from, gave you a tour of Boston back in the day. So I was curious about what did he show you then? And if he were giving you the same tour now, courtesy of your own book, how different would that be? No, it would be very different. Not that Joe was wrong back then. Basically, when I first moved to Boston from Los Angeles, Joe was among the people who warned me about how hyper-segregated what was to become my city is. And uh, with that warning, we visited uh, different parts of the city. At that point, we also did it by car rather than by foot. And he pointed out the different hills in Dorchester. And we also looked at uh, East Boston as well. In that time, both Joe and I were relatively innocent of the deep history of our city. I think we were both profoundly uh, aware that there was a lot more than we were seeing. But we, in the course of our work on the city, not only sort of came to understand how the segregation came to be, but also how intersectional many of the movements in the past were. And that was something that really surprised me, and I I suspect my co-authors, Eleni and Joe, as well, as to how people in so many different social locations collaborated and challenged the powers that be to make a greater city, a better city, and and a city that we we would desire to live in. And this goes, you know, we can think of the so-called mill girls in Lowell uh, acting in solidarity with... um, with enslaved people, even though their livelihood depended on cotton coming up from the South. So, so this, these kinds of intersectionalities, what really discovering it and understanding it through history is something that really came through sort of between the then and the now uh, of our understanding of the city. Mm. So, Eleni, there are sites that you mentioned. I'm, I'm flipping, I flipped through the book and found the exact sites, and then from there you tell broader stories. Did you have any idea what you might find, I guess is what I'm saying, because there are so many. I looked at my my bookshelf. I have about 16 books on Boston. So, you know, you wonder, my goodness, what else could you find? And I wondered if, as you were starting this work, did you have a clue about what you might discover? So, The way that I became a part of this project was I was a senior college student in Joe's class at Vassar College, and I started out as a research assistant for this project, and and I was really there looking at sites and talking to local 
history, uh, societies, and communities to understand what they thought was important to tell through this book. And so we learned a lot that way, just kind of gathering information. And then also for me, uh, I grew up in Cambridge and I went to public schools in Cambridge. And there were a few sites in the book that, that came out of uh, interactions that I had with various teachers or you know, parents of friends. The one that I like to tell is the story about the Polaroid Revolutionary Workers Movement, PRWM. And so that was a group of Polaroid workers who uh, organized around the use of Polaroid film in apartheid South Africa. And I had heard of it because in my high school history class, where my teacher took us to another classroom to learn about this movement, because the woman who was part of the founding of PRWM was a teacher at my high school, Caroline Hunter. And so she told us the story. And as part of this project, I kind of remembered this story. And and so there I I really learned, you know, much deeper story, not just the five minute version through high school, but the actual implications of this really incredible movement that was one of the first boycott movements against apartheid South Africa. Again, in Cambridge, uh, we looked at the Women's Center, which started out of an organization of women, um, 888 Memorial Drive. And you might have heard of the the movie that came out of this story, um, Left on Pearl. It came out a few years ago. We actually did a whole a whole segment on this show about Left on Pearl and and that movement. Yes. <laughs> Go ahead. Oh, great. <laughs> So I, you know, I happen to live down the street from the Women's Center currently, and I walk by it all the time, but I didn't know the the story behind it. So uncovering these really rich stories of intersectional movements was really rewarding. So you were Cambridge primarily. Seren, what area were you diving into for the sites and stories? Well, you know, we, we all wrote about virtually all parts of the greater Boston area, And so for me, certainly Chelsea and Haverhill and Plymouth were were areas that I specialized in to a certain degree. And we discussed all the areas and all the sites with each other. What stood out for you in the way that Eleni was surprised by the the Women's Center and the Left on Pearl film and and that whole history? Was there something in the the physical areas that you focused on, even though all of you uh, talked about the stories, that surprised you? One of the movements that I, I also knew about for almost from a textbook was the Combahee River Collective. So not so much Cambridge, but Dorchester. And th- that's where the Combahee River Collective was founded, uh, out of meetings in people's living rooms. And uh, of course, they, they, they later come to meet more regularly at the Women's Centre in Cambridge. But this the sense in which activists in different movements get together, even though they're often seen as uh, very discrete and separate entities. That's what sort of, again, was surprising for me. So, Joe, first I want to know if there were any stories in the areas that you concentrated on that surprised you. And then second, the whole idea of the of the overlap of, of so many of the movements people don't know about. And I just picked up, for example, on page 66 in your book, The Common Cupboard. I never heard of that, based in Chinatown. And this was a meeting place for socialists and anarchists. Who knew? It was a restaurant located in the basement of a rooming house. I mean, that's very interesting. Yes, there were certainly many. And The Common Cupboard was one of them, not least because Common Street, which is you know was in Chinatown, no longer exists, right? Like so many places in the city of Boston and in the greater region, Places have been destroyed, in this case, in the name of urban renewal. But a place that really um, 
stands out to me is how we came across something that took place in City Square Park, which is in Charlestown. We were looking into a related site, a very nearby site in, in Charlestown, at the Charlestown Navy Yard. And in looking at the Digital Commonwealth, which is a repository of photos of, you know, the Boston Public Library and a lot of research institutions in and around the area, we encountered a photo of four men, three of whom were military officers, the other who turned out to be an ambassador, standing in front of a, a Nazi SWAT sticker flag on a ship in the Charlestown Navy Yard. This was May 1934. One was the ambassador from Germany and three were German naval officers. What we found out was that the Karlsruhe, which was the name of the battleship, was part of Hitler's Navy, had, was moored there as part of a goodwill tour. Well, on May 17, 1934, it turns out, hundreds of anti-Nazi protesters marched from the North End to Charlestown to protest the very presence of the Karlsruhe. Joining these protesters were pro-Nazi, pro-Germany uh, demonstrators from uh, Harvard University, among other places. And this led to a riot. Uh, right across the street from City Square Park is a police station, and it was a essentially a police riot. And the police beat up, for the most part, the anti-Nazi protesters. And this was something that was celebrated in the newspapers, like the Herald and the Globe. It was reported largely uncritically. Later that night at the Copley Plaza Hotel in Copley Square, there was an official welcoming dinner in the, in the Grand Ballroom to welcome the crew of the Karlsruhe. And as was reported in the newspaper, they hung the U.S., German, and Nazi swastika flags from the ceiling. And let me just share with you how the Herald reported on this, you know, on the Karlsruhe's visit. This gives you a sense of how fawning the coverage was. Each member of the ship, I'm quoting the Herald now, has this common denominator, an impeccable appearance, a knowledge of English, and a charming old world courtesy. They were, in short, a joy to the feminine heart and made that poor fellow, the average American, seem a bit shabby by contrast." End quote. So what this story demonstrates is not only uh, how uncritical many in the Boston and Massachusetts political establishment were towards the Nazis, but essentially how welcoming they were. Anti-Semitism was a very serious problem in Boston during this time. At the same time, what the story shows is that there were many people, in this case, trade, trade unionists, members of the Communist Party, uh, students, Jewish community activists who organized to oppose this. If you're just tuning in, this is a special encore show of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and in November, I spoke to Joe Nevins, Seren Mudliar, and Eleni McCrackus, three co-authors of A People's Guide to Greater Boston. We were speaking about the often untold history of the region. Joe, I'm I'm sure you're. I won't be the first person to say that the People's Guide title and your focus in this book reminds one of a people's history of the United States. Howard Zinn, long deceased historian, whose book was and continues to be quite influential in the telling of American history. Is that something you wanted to to sort of be like, or was that just was a coincidental that it, it kind of had a similar focus? I wouldn't say it's coincidental at all. I mean, certainly Howard Zinn's book inspired the way we thought about approaching Greater Boston. It also inspired the larger series. I mean, as you mentioned earlier, this book follows the People's Guide to Los Angeles. And now there's a whole series of books coming out about different cities and areas of the United States under this People's Guide series. So our approach is explicitly one from below, from the 
political, economic, and social and ideological margins. This is what we're calling a people's perspective. And as such, the book explicitly privileges the desires, hopes, and struggles of those who are on the, you know, on the receiving ends of, of unjust forms of power and those who seek to challenge those inequalities. And so in terms of the stories that we tell, right, we very much feature and privilege the experiences of people of African descent, you know, women, workers, uh, people on the ideological margins, right? People who are typically not centered in stories of greater Boston, but whose stories are central to the making of this region. So, Eleni, one of the things that you said was that uh, this is an expanding, as Joe is explaining and as, as Seren has, has mentioned, of what people understand of American history that, and in fact, you've said there's more than one view of it. I, I don't want to put words in your mouth. What do you mean by that, more than one view of American history? I mean, this is, you know, I think back to what I learned in um, elementary, middle, and high school, and what I learned in college. And what I mean by more than one view is, you know, who's telling the story, who has been included in the story. When, when we started this project, we looked at all the existing guidebooks of Boston's history, and we felt that a lot of those stories were missing those key viewpoints. A diverse group of people that made this city and are not represented in the kind of mainstream guidebook that you find in a bookstore. Seren, this is interesting that you have a book, a physical book, and you have uh, quite a bit of site, a number of sites, I think 160 that you've uh, thoroughly researched and noted in the book. But yet this is not done, that this project, A People's Guide, continues. You've added more to it. There's a, a website. As you say, you're bringing the tools of academia to a tourist guide. Tell me how you're continuing to expand what's, what's in the, the physical paper book. You know, this is necessarily an incomplete project, given that in addition to telling the stories of people who are excluded from history, we're also telling the stories of people who, in that exclusion from history, have developed alternative visions of the future. So the present itself is incomplete, and they are in the process of making history. So even if we were to successfully deal with everything in the past, there's still new sites being created every moment. So how do we accommodate that? With the website, we'll be adding sites as people suggest them to us and as our first other work uh, uncovers. And also, uh, we will be doing things like developing fold-out maps uh, for different parts of Greater Boston that help tell the story both of the people's history and history that is currently in the making. I should say, too, that the series, the People's Guide series of books, has a common website that's being prepared and that will feature stories from other cities and other sites as well. So, Joe, so I'm an average tourist. I, I come to Greater Boston and I have my array of, of uh, tourist guides to pick up. I pick up your book and, and likely another. How do you want me to use this guide? We would want you to use it not only to visit some of the familiar sites, you know, in and around the downtown area, because we do take you to some of the familiar sites like Faneuil Hall and, and Fenway Park. Right? But in doing that, we tell you a very different story than a typical guidebook is going to tell you. In the case of Faneuil Hall, what we tell you is about the founding of the Anti-Imperialist League and the aftermath of the U.S. attack on the Spanish colonies, right? the so-called Spanish-American War. So what we'd like you to do is sort of put into conversation with the stories that you've already heard or that you're hearing from more conventional sources. 
At the same time, we want to encourage you to get off the beaten track. So in addition to having sites, we have a number of tours. We have a Sacco and Vanzetti tour. We have a we have a Native American tour. We also have a Malcolm, as in Malcolm X, and Martin, Martin Luther King tour. So we would encourage you to go to Dale Street in Roxbury, right, where Mal- Malcolm X lived uh, for a number of years. We would encourage you to go to the site of the Charlestown Prison, right, where Malcolm X was held. It's now the site of Bunker Hill Community College. It's also the site uh, where uh, Sacco and Minzetti were executed, right, the last execution in the state of Massachusetts, which took place in 1927. And we want you to get outside the city of Boston to go to places like Lawrence and Lynn, which are very far off the uh, the beaten track of tourists, to understand how they both reflect right, and help to produce Boston as a city, a city writ large. Seren, is this a perfect time in some way for this book and this focus? One of the things we had hoped with the title A People's Guide is to actually present the book to the people in person through face-to-face meetings, and yet that is denied to us. And then when we look at our book, the reason it's denied to us is at the moment not merely a pandemic, but an inept public sector response to the pandemic. And as a consequence, we we were forced to think about how pandemics have played out in the past. And indeed, we tell us stories of several other pandemics that have shaped Boston history. Aside from that, though, the fact that people are rising up and rebelling not only against Donald Trump, but against a whole history of enslavement, a history of uh, racial subjugation, as well as questioning other forms of of domination makes this book particularly appropriate. It's something we hope that will inform people as we will not only reciprocate by chronicling their actions in the future, but also we hope that awareness of how other struggles played out and sort of need the, the, need the batons of previous struggles picked up so that we may complete the, the the quest for justice. Alina, last question, and that is, you know, this is a guide, ostensibly, for tourists, except a lot of people may not be touring, and many of us may be touring in our own communities. And uh, you have talked about discovering in your own community uh, many stories that you didn't know before. So speak to those people who pick up this book who live here. Absolutely. We hope this book is not just for tourists from out of town, but really for people who are in this city and who either have lived here a long time or have only just moved here and want to learn more about, you know, why the city is the way it is. Things like, you know, why redlining has shaped the city in in ways that are segregated. Um, I think those are, are things that people are really starting to think about. You know, why is it that certain neighborhoods have certain amenities or certain parks or why are there these organizations like the Women's Center that I spoke about previously that continue to exist in really important institutions in our city? Um, you know, where can we uh, draw inspiration from in our own community? We don't have to look very far to find that inspiration and to move forward with our, our values and, you know, what we want to see change in our communities, uh, whether that's on, you know, environmental issues or um, issues of race or issues of housing. There's so many different ones that we touch on in the book, and we hope that people use these stories to move forward with their own um, actions and organizing. Thank you all so much. Thank, Thank you, you Kelly. Thank you. Joseph Nevins is a professor of geography at Vassar College. Seren Mudliar is a coordinator of Encuentro 5 
a movement building space in downtown Boston and managing editor of Socialism and Democracy, a journal of strategy. Eleni McCrackus is a project manager at Homeowners Rehab Inc., a nonprofit affordable housing developer in Cambridge. That's it for this week's Encore edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. We're on the web at wgbh.org news, Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, and available for download wherever you get your podcasts. Under the Radar with Callie Crossley is a production of GBH, produced by Hannah Ubeli and engineered by Dave Goodman. Iptisam Imaliki is our intern. Our theme music is Fish and Chips by We Are Two Saxies, Grace Kelly and Leo P. See you here at 6 p.m. next Sunday. I'm Callie Crossley. Thanks for listening.